the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is a Tuesday, the 11th day of February, just in case you lost track here. And uh, great to have you with us for another edition of Lifeline. We are here Monday through Friday at this time, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. And uh, we'll do more of the same today, plus keep you on top of traffic throughout our conversation tonight every 15 minutes so we'll get you home safe and sound. We deal tonight as we kick off the program with a issue that is becoming one that I think, frankly, most Bay Areans are becoming familiar with, particularly as the issue of homelessness moves throughout the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, for a time, and it was a long time, you generally had to go into the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, some of the old seedier parts of East 14th in Oakland, portions of East San Jose, or the so-called Iron Triangle region of Richmond in order to find homelessness in the San Francisco Bay Area, but not Not anymore. It is estimated, and these are difficult numbers to count, but it is estimated that some 28,000 people live on the streets of the San Francisco Bay Area, and the true number may be much higher than that, given the difficulty in accurately counting heads. And, of course, the awareness of this problem is beginning to spread because homelessness and the face of homelessness is no longer unique to just certain parts of the Bay Area, as I delineated a moment ago, but, in fact, widespread in bedroom communities and big cities all across the San Francisco Bay Area. And it may not be unusual for you to be in a so-called suburb bedroom community of any of the major towns of Oakland, San Francisco, or San Jose, and run into homeless people almost everywhere you go. Ironic to note that while in the United States, one in nine Americans live in California, one in four homeless of the United States call California home. Why exactly is that? Is that because this is a magnet and a better place to be homeless than maybe Chicago or Detroit or New York? Are there things about California in particular that either attract the homeless or perhaps create it? And certainly our housing crisis right now is a big part of that equation. And ironically, while we have the lowest unemployment rates since 1969, of course, part of that even then accounted for the great number of men that had gone off to serve in the Vietnam War. In spite of all that we're told in terms of how robust the economy is, the fact of the matter is there was an enormous homeless crisis in California, accompanied by a growing housing crisis, 
And some might argue one is indicative of the other. We're going to spend some time in the first portion of the program talking about not just the homeless issue, but how communities are attempting to respond to it, met with varying degrees of success and tremendous degrees of failure. To join us in the dialogue, we are pleased to have with us syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, and attorney, Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And Robert, as always, a delight to have you with us. Good afternoon, Craig. Thanks for having me. This uh, this housing crisis, it, it's a significant one, and, and what a startling contrast. We, we look at the difficulty of finding affordable housing units in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area, and yet if we travel to some place like, I don't know, let's go to uh, Des Moines, Iowa, where right now as we speak there are 2,142 apartment units available for rent on apartment.com and fully 183 homes that are available for rent. And yet here in California, and particularly in major cities like San Francisco and in Los Angeles, we can not only not keep up with the, the demand, but it seems as if we are spending untold millions toward billions of dollars in an effort to try and address the problem, but met with very little success. First, let's start out with your perspective as to how we got here. Why is it that one in four homeless people in the entire country call California home? Well, Craig, with your your question that you posed with that very brief introduction, I must compliment you. You have identified in a one-sentence question to me almost all of the issues which define in total the homelessness issue. And during the course of our time together, I hope to break it down into its components because you you gave us a wonderful place to start. First of all, I want to just point out one phrase you used, and if I may, take issue with it. You used the phrase housing shortage. I maintain, and we will discuss, I suspect, in a second, that there is absolutely no housing shortage. Indeed, the concept, those two words side by side, housing shortage, have no meaning. A housing shortage, taking those two words, means that there's not enough housing. Well, what does that mean, enough housing? Enough for what? It can only mean one thing. People who want to live here cannot find housing. That means that we will have a housing shortage until everybody on earth who wants to live, for example, in the Bay Area, will have a place to live. That's probably 35 million people. So housing shortage is a phrase that should be banned because it has no meaning. Housing shortage really means there is not that some people can't afford a housing. We have exactly the right amount of housing for people who can afford it. Anybody who wants to have housing in San Francisco who is determined to live in San Francisco can live here so long as they will pay the price. To say there's a housing shortage is to say there's a diamond shortage or there's a Kobe steak shortage. 
because Kobe steaks are too expensive, so people with low income can't afford a Kobe steak or a diamond. Uh, does that mean there's a shortage? No. It means certain commodities, and like housing, are simply too expensive for some people. So there's no housing shortage. There's no physical shortage. The issue is one of price. So the conversation gets more rational if you speak about the price of housing. Now, you made a very interesting observation, Craig, uh, when you made reference to the housing surplus in, you picked, Des Moines, Iowa. And one could take Des Moines not as Des Moines, but as a placeholder for the hundreds of cities around the country where there are vacancies. And the question is, take any homeless person in the Bay Area. If there is a place where they could live, if there is an empty dwelling unit, does do people who are homeless have an absolute right, a right for government to satisfy, if they can't afford it, a right to live in the Bay Area, the most valuable, one of the most valuable and desirable places on earth? I maintain absolutely not. There may be a right to housing, but not housing where the homeless person wants to live. And that's where the conversation gets muddled. People don't have a birthright to live in the most valuable real estate on earth. They may have a right, I don't think so, but they may have a right to housing. Or they may be, or we should provide housing. But that doesn't mean housing in San Francisco. It means housing somewhere on the planet. So the conversation has to be disciplined if we talk about the problem of homelessness. Well, I think you've just touched on something that that, uh, sort of pulls back the curtain on some of the the impropriety or um, disconnectedness from reality that has been taking place in this broader dialogue. And I stand corrected. We don't talk necessarily about a housing shortage, but rather an affordable housing shortage, affordable for people that are of a certain income level or below. But let's take, for example, what just has been in the news over the last many weeks, and that is a group of pregnant mothers who looked at a house that was in transition sale in Oakland and said, it's vacant, we need a place to stay. And so by virtue of the fact that the house is vacant and we need a place to stay, we're going to stake our claim here, essentially become squatters, and then argue that the owner, the landlord, has an obligation to allow them to stay there by virtue of the fact that, A, they have no place to stay, and B, they've decided that's where they'd like to stay. Now, what I find problematic about that, Robert, is what if someone like myself of, of, of average income level suddenly decided, you know, I like the neighborhood in which I live, but Atherton is far more attractive. And if I find a vacant home on four acres in Atherton that is of 6,000 square feet and nobody is currently occupying it, I think by virtue of the fact that I think I need a home like that, I ought to be able to move in, move my furniture in, move all the wife and kids in, and set up shop and declare that this is now my home by virtue of the fact that I want one and I like this one. If we suddenly start to look into that in that terms, isn't even the argument that put forward by the pregnant moms in Oakland begin to fall flat on its face? Of course it does, and their argument has no merit whatsoever unless unless society is prepared to abandon the core economic concept – 
of property rights. No, no economic system on earth can thrive without a vigorous system of property rights, uh, honoring of contracts, and the like. We, we must have that system or society fails economically. So to say that these four homeless or pregnant women in Oakland that you describe, apparently a real case, I don't know about it, but to say they somehow, they have a superior right to somebody else's property as opposed to the person whose property it is, then that obviously has no end, which means nobody has any right to their property, which means if you want to protect your property, government is not going to protect it. Therefore, you have to protect it yourself. And we now have everybody living in an armed camp with private police forces protecting all of their property, and society will crumble and disappear from the earth. So that can't be the case. So therefore, they have no right. They may have a need, but as is often observed frequently by libertarians, just because you need something doesn't mean you have a right to have it. There's no correlation between what you need and what is a right. A right is established through a system of morality, an economic system, and rights are cherished uh, concepts. You don't have a right to somebody else's property, never, ever, ever. And given the the history of the the feudal system in England, uh, from which many of our forefathers escaped, uh, this notion of the right to own property that you have bought and paid for and purchased and hold a deed for – uh, is is fundamental to the American experience, and I think your your observation is accurate that it may be arguable that a person needs housing, but do they necessarily have a right to housing, especially if that housing belongs to someone else? Visiting today with syndicated talk show host, attorney, best-selling author Bob Zadak, breaking down some misconceptions in relationship to the current homeless crisis in the San Francisco Bay Area. And, and most importantly, we're going to spend some time after the break talking about some of the attempts by government to try and address this issue, which seem to be uh, perhaps long on creativity, but very short on wisdom and understanding insofar as being able to create a solution that is both practical and executable. Let's take a time out. We'll come back with more. Bob's program, by the way, is heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. You can check him out online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Very informative, insightful, always great guests, and always an engaging conversation where you can walk away both encouraged, educated, and challenged. Check him out Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock here on the West Coast, locally in the Bay Area on 860 a.m., KTRB The Answer, details and resources available along with podcast at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. We'll take this time out, get you an update on traffic. Let's see what's going on on the road ahead this Tuesday from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. With us is attorney, 
syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show. Heard Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock here on the West Coast, locally in the Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer, KTRB Radio. We're talking about homelessness in California. And, you know, Bob, certainly there have been a lot of discussions related to government's responsibility in dealing with this crisis. Much of the reaction has been things like the creation of so-called navigation centers in San Francisco, tent cities, allowing RV parking lots, even to the idea of creating communities of essentially 8 by 8 or 10 by 10 backyard sheds cobbled together to provide housing. But I find a story that appeared on CBS this morning to perhaps be most telling in relationship to some of the housing crisis, at least here in the San Francisco Bay Area, related to a man who owns a three-level or three-flat um, uh, painted lady or one of the old Victorians in San Francisco. And apparently there had been some unpermitted work done to uh, two of the three floors, and a neighbor had complained about the fact that there were three sets of people living in this building. And uh, when code enforcement or the building department for San Francisco came to inspect, they discovered that the ceiling height for one of the units, the, the basement unit, the ceiling height did not meet San Francisco's 7.6, 7 feet 6 inch standard. And although all of the occupants in this building, including the owner who lives in the second floor, were very happy, very pleased, um, the, the price of the housing was quite affordable, the city of San Francisco came back and said, well, you've got to bring it up to code uh, or you can't, uh, you can't rent out the other two units. Well, um, the quote on that was over $200,000 that would be required just to bring the basement unit up to, quote-unquote, code meeting the minimum seven foot six inch ceiling height and effectively unless the planning commission decides to reverse itself and give him a conditional use permit um, he will wind up closing down two of the three flats effectively putting two families out on the street i heard that story they showed copious uh, photographs of inside the both of the units, very nicely built, nicely apportioned. Both of the tenants, very happy to be there, very happy with the rent price, quite affordable. And yet they are facing the possibility of eviction, not by the landlord, but by the city of San Francisco, because the basement unit is short by several inches. And it's said to me that if anything, as much as the city and other big communities like Los Angeles not just San Francisco, talk about wanting to do something. Part of the red tape is demonstrative of the fact that they just can't get out of their own way in the process. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, it's not a question of getting out of their own way. Their actions are intentional. San Francisco is the mother of all nanny jurisdictions where they believe government believes, and there's a long tradition of that, that they know what's best for the owners of property and the occupants of property. They know better than the occupants themselves and the owners themselves what's best for them. That is endemic of a place like San Francisco. And before the break, Craig, you and I sort of reached an agreement. We didn't discuss it at length, but we agreed that the problem is not the housing shortage, it is the price of existing housing. Now, the price. The price is a function of two components, demand and supply. 
And when there is a large demand and a short supply, price goes up. Price is an information provider. It tells you whether there is enough of a commodity, whether it's food or housing or clothing, or not. And it's a signaler. So when the price goes up, that's a market signal that there's either too much demand, but you can't affect demand that much. If people want to live here, they want to live in the Bay Area. But you can affect price. And price, if the government prohibits the increase in supply, the automatic, sure as night follows day, the automatic result is the price goes up. So the story you told is a microcosm, is one uh, example of how in thousands of ways government itself causes a housing shortage which increases the price, which means more people can't afford it than who want it. Thus, we have homelessness. So homelessness is, while it is a very complex issue, there, are, there is medical components to it, there are social components to it, there is just bad luck, there is a very complex issue. But to some degree, the component is the price of available housing. Not the quantity of housing, but the price. And the price is a function of not enough. So when government artificially reduces the supply in just the way you said, then automatically the price goes up. So you tell a perfect story as an example of why there is such a problem in the Bay Area. And one other, one other thing I want to mention, Craig, because it's really important to me. You have an audience that has a very strong moral compass. And we, you told the story of these four pregnant women who needed shelter and they, would, they wanted to live where they weren't allowed to live under law in somebody else's property. And I said, no, the rights of the landlord have to prevail. However, however, that lest that seem a little bit cruel, I want to point out that when I say government doesn't have a role to play, that doesn't mean that us citizens don't have a role to play. Everybody has to make their own decision about how generous to be when they have enough, how generous to be towards people who have much less. But that's a personal decision that you and I and everybody we know will make. And hopefully, hopefully, since we are a charitable society who generally look after each other, the operation of private actors, churches, uh, fraternal organizations, and individuals and families acting alone by their own morality will find a way to provide the wherewithal for these women, as an example in your story, to find a comfortable place to live. My point is, it is not the government's job to compel charity. It is our job, our morality, is to be generous. And history has shown us that mankind has taken care of each other. We are a generous class of being, and we look after each other. Now, it may not be as, as much as others might want, but nobody gets to dictate how charitable another person has to be. That is the most personal of decisions. 
I want to come back to something you've touched on, this notion of uh, seemingly government standing on both sides of the fence on this topic, in so much as the example I share of the um, Victorian owner in San Francisco, who may very well be facing uh, the closure of two of his units for rent, an impact on his income, displacing two families, not because it's an unsafe environment or it's an environment that nobody is content with, but simply because it doesn't meet code. It's, in one case, the ceiling is lower than seven feet, six inches. And so as a result, the city says, you're not playing a game with our rules, and therefore you're out of the game. And so there's that side of the equation. Then there's the side of the equation where government comes in and says, um, we're fine for entrepreneurial folks to invest in property, to rent those properties. However, we wish to dictate certain market conditions. We want to put artificial market controls that suggest how much the rent is going to be, how often you can raise the rent, by what percentage you can raise the rent, all of this. And while I understand, in a sense, what they are trying to do, I have to wonder why it is that in America we eschew we every sense of almost communist-style price controls. Uh, I mean, the, the last time we tried it and, and it created a huge black market was during World War II. But that aside, the notion that government can come in and forcibly say to an investor, to a property owner, that you can't charge any more than X dollars for this piece of property or this unit, regardless of whether or not you can find anybody who's willing to pay for it. And again, I, I don't want to appear to be cold-hearted here that I don't understand the plight of people who get displaced. But is there an inherent danger to not allowing market conditions, the free market, to do essentially what it does, and that is to ebb and flow with supply and demand? Well, of course there is. The question has to be labeled as rhetorical. I'm reminded of that fable of King Midas, who had enormous wealth and power. And the, the fable goes, he was standing on the shores of the mighty ocean, and he was accustomed to getting his way. And he stood by the shore of the ocean and tried to order and direct the waves to stop rolling towards the shore. It's that level of hubris. And King Midas trying to stop the waves is the same as the government trying to control the price of something. It cannot be done. Whether it's wage and price controls, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's rent control, if you control the price of something, if the price is not allowed to reach its market level, then automatically... Since the demand is going to remain the same, what has to give? The supply is going to go down. If no one is going to build housing, if they're not allowed to earn the return they require to build it. So therefore, regulate the price and the supply goes down because people are not willing uh, to hire people if they're not allowed to pay, if they have to pay more than something is worth or earn less than they're worth. People just don't behave that way. So therefore, you're exactly right. Things adjusting the market price by fiat will just cause a decrease in supply, further contributing to the homelessness. You raise another just as 
accurate example of how the supply, the problem in the equation, there's not enough supply, how the absence of supply is not a function of stupidity, it's a function of bad governmental policies which prevent the supply from being there. And certainly the government has the inherent power to do it. They have guns. We don't have guns. But whether they use that power wisely or not is a totally different story. Let's talk about the potential chilling impact on investment here for a moment. We we know certainly that in California, some of the wonderful um, uh, values that we enjoy, the the appreciation of our real estate has to do with that very issue of supply and demand. California real estate is attractive. People like to work here. They like to live here. The jobs are here, and therefore, um, investing here in real estate can be very advantageous. Do we potentially create a, a, a major economic mess if we begin to begin to toy with, I'll call it, uh, the ability of investors to be able to invest their money in real estate and then get a reasonable rate of return on said investment. For example, oftentimes in the city of San Francisco, we hear large mega landlords like Veritas, very much vilified. It's a hedge fund. They're coming in. They're buying up all of these rental units across the city. They're raising rates. It's becoming unaffordable. We need to pass laws that prevent hedge funds or large investors from buying real estate. Well, if the city of San Francisco, for example, were successful at doing just that, isn't there the potentiality of that blowing up on them where suddenly the larger investor who perhaps is the only one that can afford a 200-unit apartment complex or a 50-unit building would, would suddenly be discouraged from investing in real estate like that and therefore artificially force the supply down? Well, of course there is. And in a perverse way, uh, I like the idea of that happening because it's one thing to spend our time on the radio or reading or talking to our friends and predicting what's going to happen. It's another thing to be able to point to it and saying, here, here is a city of 800,000 people where just what we said was going to happen will happen. It makes the most compelling argument, and it is proof positive that we are correct. And another point, Craig, on this subject of building market rate, i.e. upper scale housing, every time any housing is built, let's assume San Francisco has new construction, and another 1,500 units of really expensive housing is built. How does that help the homelessness? Well, watch this, Craig. Who's going to move into those 1,500 units? People who are in a little bit less expensive housing who want to trade up. Now they can afford it. Who's going to move into the housing those people left? People who are one notch down. There will be a ripple effect, and as sure as night follows day, There will end up being, at the end of that little chain, 1,500 units of very modest costing housing that now becomes available. So the type of housing that's built is less relevant than the amount of units that are built because it all filters down and a need is, to that degree, satisfied. And Craig, the best example of, of my point is 
let's think everybody has visited most people have visited New York City. There are some beautiful neighborhoods. Let's say Park Avenue, where the Bernie Sanders billionaires all live on Park Avenue. Does a homeless person in New York City have a right? Are they entitled to live on Park Avenue? Well, of course not. Well, if they are not entitled to pick where they're going to live, are they entitled to live in New York City as opposed to Jersey City, New Jersey? Are they opposed? Are they entitled to live in Jersey City as opposed to Des Moines, Iowa, where we started the show? And you end up concluding, even if people deserve to have housing, they don't deserve to have housing exactly where they want. They deserve to have housing, but where it's affordable under market conditions. And that's an important point that gets lost. The homelessness in San Francisco, even if they are entitled to housing, whatever entitled means, it doesn't mean they're entitled to housing in San Francisco. Well, it's like the argument of public transportation or transportation in general. Are people entitled to transportation? Well, to get to and from work and school and to care for the family? Uh, perhaps so. Does that mean that Tesla should lower the cost um, of uh, the Tesla Model X because the average person can't afford to shell out $125,000 and they should knock the price point down to, oh, let's make it something simple, $15,000 so we can all run around in Teslas? Probably not. And, and I guess to kind of put a bow around all of this, Bob, what becomes problematic here is that the more government tends to tinker with all of this, be it on the 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 supply end or the demand end, whether it's housing controls, rent controls, price controls, um, or or even restriction of trade in a sense of the ability to either build new units or convert existing units or even put to put to work existing units that may perhaps not precisely match city code requirements, like in the case of the um, the three flat. Victorian and San Francisco, I cited earlier, but the very least demonstrate that it's healthy, it's safe, it doesn't pose a danger to anyone. Uh, is all of this tinkering on either end of the continuum by government, in your opinion, help the problem or exacerbate it? It exacerbates the problem because once you start distorting the market and price becomes a, a bad signal of people of value. Capital gets all distorted and goes to the wrong places. In the, under a free market system, the price of something would be what it naturally is based upon supply and demand. And if that means that some people can't afford something which society decides they need, then either give them the money voluntarily or, and I hate to even say this, but if you are a progressive and this is your orientation, then let prices achieve their natural level. And if you think people deserve something they can't afford, then tax everybody and give the people who can't afford it money. And that's an honest political system. Now, you won't get reelected, but that's an honest system. But systems like rent control really mean that landlords have to bear the cost of homelessness rather than all of society. And why in the world should a landlord have to absorb 
the economic loss due to homelessness as opposed to all of society. And if all of society should bear the cost, let them bear the cost voluntarily, not because government directs it. And, and I think uh, to, to, to really put a, a strong period exclamation point on our discussion today, uh, that kind of intervention that would create such a disruption where essentially we're, we're tinkering with the investment side. We're saying to investors, be it, you know, somebody who's worked hard, saved a little extra money and decides to buy an apartment building of four units or wants to buy a single family dwelling and rent that out for income property for retirement, whatever the case may be, up to the big hedge funds. That if we tinker with this and there is a significant disruption to the investment side, you demotivate the investor. What investor in their right mind would, would, would be willing to put their hard-earned money into an investment where you said it will cost, for example, $600,000 for you to buy this unit or to build this unit, upon which you can only realize $200,000 because we're going to artificially control the rental price? Well, you did that, and you would so disrupt the motivation for investors that investment, as Bob said, would dry up and go somewhere else where they can see a decent ROI. And suddenly, in the effort to pat ourselves on the back and think we're doing good by providing affordable housing, what we're really doing is decreasing the amount of housing that's available because we are discouraging people from investing. Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, 8.60 a.m., The Answer. Check him out online, too. Lots of information about his books, other resources, podcast too, at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Our thanks to Bob Zadek. Always an education to have it with us on the program. All right, we're 10 away from the hour. Let's get you updated on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you believe a lot of the sort of pop culture messages related to what life is like when one reaches their 50s and 60s, certainly, you'll get the notion that there's a lot of um, propaganda out there, and I choose that word intentionally. A lot of propaganda suggests that when you reach your 50s, certainly into your 60s, you're on your way down. The best part of life is over with you. Your yearning, uh, your your educational years are behind you. Your earning years, your most peak earning years, are beginning to subside. Child rearing has come and gone. The empty nest has started, and and therefore time to kind of begin to coast into the balance of your natural life. I think my next guest is going to suggest, oh, contraire, that if anything, once you reach. 50s, and you have the abundance of knowledge and life experience behind you and education, and hopefully you've gained some wisdom along the way, that this is not a time to be winding down life, but anything to begin to crank it up for the next exciting chapter. Best-selling author Leslie Leland Fields joins us. She's got a new book out. We've talked about it, The Wonder Years, 40 Women on over 40 on aging, faith, beauty, and strength. And uh, coincidentally, the Wonder Years Gathering, a special conference coming to the Bay Area 
um, specifically at Mount Hermon, February 21 through 23, in which right now there's some special reduced prices for the last of rooms that remain, and you can check it out by going online to wonderyearsgathering.com. That's wonderyearsgathering.com. You use the uh, the uh, KFAX um, discount code, and you can get $200 off. And meanwhile, Leslie, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for announcing that special that special discount. It, it actually means that a whole weekend retreat in, in, you know, in a gorgeous setting from Friday to Sunday afternoon is, is only $300, and it's everything. That includes food and lodging and all of the speakers. So it's, it's going to be a wonderful time. And a great time. And again, the website that uh, Leslie just referred to, wonderyearsgathering.com. Use the um, the special code KFAX. You can get that discount, as she mentioned, the whole weekend. That includes lodging, meals, teaching, everything. And you can get a $200 off coupon right now for the remain spaces that uh, are available at wonderyearsgathering.com. This idea that well, you've uh, finished your 30s and 40s, you got the crazy 20s out of the way, now you've gotten a job, you've earned your education, you've you've got some experience, you've made some money, raised your kids, sent them off to school or marriages and families of their own, and so by the time you coast into your 50s and begin to look 60s in the face, it's uh, it's kind of time to begin to wrap things up. What, what, what do you think about that societal notion? Uh, well, I think God says fooey on that. Um, and I have some verses to prove it. That, that's a very theological statement. Um, so there's a verse in Isaiah, um, and, and we can find verses just throughout Scripture, but in Isaiah 46, 4, um, this is what God says, and I will still be carrying you when you are old. Your hair will turn gray, and I will still carry you. I made you, and I will carry you to safety. And, and one of the things people fear about aging, I, I think, is that we fear abandonment, um, maybe sometimes by our family, by God. And God says, I'm going to carry you. I'm going to carry you all the way. So that, that gives us such hope. And then um, the verse in, in, in Psalm 71 is another. We have gray hair here, too. Um, the psalmist says, now that I am old and my hair is gray, don't leave me, God. I must tell the next generation about your power and greatness. God, your goodness reaches far above the skies. You have done wonderful things. And this is why, this is one of the reasons that, that we I've called the book and now the, the conference, The Wonder Years. Did you hear that? You have done wonderful things. God has truly done wonderful things, and we ought to be wonder-filled at all the things He's already done in our lives. And we are not done, and God is not done with us. There's so many amazing, wonder-filled things that God is still going to do in our lives. And, you know, this psalm, and there are a number of other places, too, that speak to this. He said, the, the psalm is, I'm old, but God, I've got to... I, I, I've got to stay busy because I've got to tell the younger generation about who you are and all you've done. And this is why, Craig, um, when we hit our 50s and our 60s and our 70s and our 80s, no matter our 90s, no matter how, how old we are, God has given us a job to do, 
And it's not a job that's burdensome. It's not a job that's like punching in the clock or, or you know, um, just a, a drop job of drudgery. It's a job of of excitement and joy and gladness that we get to share the wonder of who God is and all that He has done in our lives and in in, in other people's lives. So this is this can make the second half of our life truly full of wonder and joy and excitement. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, body and and aches and pains notwithstanding, um, to allow a mindset that is based on an erroneous conclusion or based on the propaganda of modern society that tends to uh, elevate youth youth above all else, um, it, it really ought to be an important lesson to us. Um, that as we have come this far by faith, <laughs> that God has equipped us, prepared us, given us the experience, hopefully along with it, the understanding and the wisdom that we've accumulated down through the years, that these, in fact, should be the most wonderful years of our life and not to be looked at with a sense of fear and trepidation. Again, sometimes the body doesn't always cooperate, but if we allow the mind to get in our way, that's on us. The Wonder Years Gathering, again, I'll mention to you, this is going to be taking place at Mount Hermon February the 21st through the 23rd. So a week from this weekend, still plenty of time to plan, still twenty plenty of time to reserve your place. Um, you can get more information about the conference online at wonderyearsgathering.com. That's wonderyearsgathering.com. There's just a few rooms left. And if you'd like to jump in and take advantage of a $200 discount to use KFAX um, in the um, in the box there, and uh, you'll get that $200 discount. You can enjoy the entire weekend, Friday through Sunday. That's lodging, meals, teaching, the whole nine yards. And uh, right now it is a $200 discount for using KFAX in the checkout box. One of the keynote speakers, Leslie Leland Fields at thewonderyearsgathering.com. And Leslie, thanks so much for the time. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's see what time gives us traffic-wise.